Currency Press is Australia's foremost publisher of the performing arts. We've been sharing Australian stories since 1971, and with those stories we've also shared insights, ideas and critiques. We think of them as the stories about stories, the stories behind stories, preparing us for the journey that we're about to undertake. Hello, I'm Toby Leon, and this is Not In Print. Today, I'm going to read H.G. Kipax's preface to the first edition of Don's Party. Harold Gemmeld Kipax, or Harry, as he was known, worked as a journalist at the Sydney Morning Herald for many years. He served as the paper's literary editor for a time, as well as covering politics and wars in Europe and Asia, the United States and other parts of the world. But it is perhaps his theatrical criticism that he is best known for. In 1959, Kipax began writing theatre reviews for The Nation, a fortnightly periodical of the era, and he was an early champion of Patrick White's plays. From the mid-1960s on, he became the authoritative critic at the Herald and is said to have spotted the talent of the young John Bell, Robin Nevin, Mel Gibson, Judy Davis and David Williamson. Here's my reading of H.G. Kipax's preface to Don's Party, which he wrote to coincide with the publication of the play in 1973. On Saturday the 25th of October 1969, Australians voted to elect their 27th Parliament. That evening, in Don's Party, Don and Kath invited some of their friends together at their suburban home to watch the progress of the election count on television, drink some beer, and hopefully celebrate a Labour Party election. At first, their hopes appeared to be well-based. At the beginning of the count, Labour quickly moved into the lead. By 9.30, a big swing to Labour was certain, and a defeat began to look likely for the Liberal Country Party coalition government. The swing remained a fact, but as the night wore on, it became increasingly unlikely that it would dislodge the government. By midnight, the Prime Minister was claiming victory. David Williamson's play reflects the hopes and then the frustration of Labour supporters on that night of suspense. The frustration was bitter. In 1969, Labour had been in opposition for 20 years, two turbulent decades of party strife and divisions, of declining morale and continuing uncertainty. Labour had been rejected in 1949 following the rash attempt by its leader, J.B. Chifley, to nationalise the private trading banks. The leader of the new Liberal Party, Robert Gordon Menzies, opposed Chifley with a promise to end wartime controls, notably petrol rationing. His success in keeping this promise, reinforced by the post-war boom, kept the Liberal Country Party comfortably in power. Abroad, the Cold War was growing ever more intense. This too helped to confirm the country's conservative bias. In due course, it helped to split the Labour Party. Labour's new leader, H. V. Evatt, created a storm of controversy, ably exploited by Menzies, when he intervened to defend his staff before the Royal Commission into the allegations of espionage and subversion made by the Soviet embassy defector, Vladimir Petrov. Subsequently, Evatt moved to expel the militant anti-communist and mainly Roman Catholic industrial groups, a party within the party. This faction formed the Democratic Labour Party, which thereafter allotted its preferences in elections to the government. It was these DLP preferences that thwarted Labour in 1961. 
harsh deflationary measures by the government had produced an economic recession and unemployment. To the government's astonishment, Labour, now under Arthur A. Corwell, came within an ace of power, reducing the government's majority from 32 to 1. Labour's recovery was short-lived. By 1963, Labour was again damagingly divided over state aid to independent, mainly Roman Catholic schools and its perennial bugbears, foreign policy and defence. Caldwell, in his day a great immigration minister, was by then the oldest leader Labour had ever had. There was little sympathy between him and the younger generation, led by his deputy, Edward Gough Whitlam. With the economy back on an even keel, the country returned the government with a majority of 22. The 1966 election saw this majority further increased. By then, Australian troops were fighting in Vietnam, and the new Prime Minister, Harold E. Holt, made this and the conscription introduced by Menzies the main issues of a bitterly contested election. Once again, the vote overwhelmed Labour. The political climate of 1969 was very different from that of 1966. Australia's involvement in Vietnam was widely questioned, and the conscription was being actively challenged. The previous year had revealed the deep and wounding divisions in the United States as Nixon battled his way to the presidency. Similar passions were now abroad in Australia. The Canberra scene was changing. Caldwell had resigned as leader of the Labour Party in 1967 to be succeeded by Whitlam. Holt had died and others of Menzies' team, Hasluck, Fairhall, McEwen, had gone or were going. The new Prime Minister, John Gray Gorton, was an ardent centralist, like Whitlam. A pugnacious individualist, his style of government relying on an inner circle of associates at least as much as on cabinet, was already producing the first mutterings of the party storm that later swept him from power. His relations with his treasurer, William McMahon, were uneasy. He had offended many in the state branches of the party. The DLP distrusted him, a ham-fisted president, its journal called him. Nevertheless, he faced the electorate with the knowledge that never had an Australian Prime Minister been voted from office at his first election. That unique fate was reserved for McMahon in 1972. It was also true that Gorton's vigour, candour and unorthodoxy went some way to match the new mood of impatience and scepticism about the assumptions, caution and paternalism of the Menzies era. His opponent, Whitlam, actively embraced this mood. His call was for change, and he backed it with well-argued proposals for radical reform to the health service, for lowering the cost of housing, and for expanding social services. He promised to abolish conscription and to pull Australian troops out of Vietnam and Malaysia. His campaign, in fact, was an all-out attempt to shift the electorate's attention from foreign policy and defence, the preoccupations of the Cold War, to Australia's own society, and especially to its cities with their manifest problems of blight and sprawl. His appeal was to the suburbs, to the middle-class family man, above all to the one voter in every four who was 30 or under. By 1969, the Labour Party was in better shape than it had been for 20 years. Whitlam had won his fight to reform its federal executive. The party no longer opposed state aid to independent schools. It was heartened by the DLP's dissatisfaction with Gorton. 
Labor scented victory and was undeterred by the magnitude of the 9% swing it would need to dispose of the government's big majority. Whitlam began campaigning early. At the beginning of September, one poll detected no more than a 3% swing to Labor, but another, a little later, showed 51% of Liberal supporters favouring Labor's health scheme. The Sydney Morning Herald said Whitlam's policy speech on the 1st of October had a freshness and reforming vigour, which deserved respect. Gorton's policy speech, on television, was by contrast in a low and impersonal key, making few promises other than increased defence spending, as demanded by the DLP, and emphasising reasonably enough the government's record of prosperity with undue inflation. Gorton's first shock came when a poll after the policy speeches showed the government's popularity down from the June figure of 49% to 42%, and Labour's up from 39 to 45 That was when people like Don really began to believe that the long years in the wilderness might be about to end. They were wrong. But Whitlam's achievement had historic significance, an unprecedented 8% swing that cut the government's majority to seven and prepared the way for the victory in 1972. Once again, the DLP was a decisive factor. The figures tell something of the story. The Liberal Coalition Party, 2,649,219. Labour, 2,870,792. DLP, 367,977. There, in the cloud cast over Labour's early lead by fewer than 400,000 DLP votes, is the reason for the gloom that settled over Don's party. Don's party, of course, is not a political play. Its one political comment, made implicitly, is that people like Don and his friends tend to regard a political contest as something very like a sporting event, an occasion for cheers when the right team wins and glum silence if it doesn't. Nevertheless, the play has political interest. Its sociological themes sketch some of the elements of change in the electorate, the accelerating effect of affluence and expanding educational opportunities on social mobility, the invasion of the professional middle class by the working class or lower middle class beneficiaries of Menzies' enlightened universities policy, the emergence of the bored and discontented educated housewife in the labour-saving homes of suburbia, the recruiting grounds of women's lib. It was to this kind of discontent and boredom, a hankering for new ideas and new initiatives, bearing on the quality of life in a society which now takes Menzies' preoccupations of security and prosperity for granted, that Whitlam appealed to in 1969, and again, even more clemently, in 1972. Thanks for listening to this episode of Not In Print. You can find our full catalogue at currencypress.com.au. And if you have any questions or comments about this episode or any other episode, then we'd love to hear from you. Just search for Currency Press on Facebook or Twitter and drop us a line. This episode was produced by Currency Press, with the generous assistance of the Department of Performance Studies and the School of Letters, Art and Media at the University of Sydney.